Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week, uh, this time of year, uh, or moving forward, I should say, on Twitter at EBR, Evidence-Based Radio, underscore VFR, Valley Free Radio. Um, And you can also find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher um, or at the website evidencebasederata.com. As a bonus, I've been thinking about writing an essay um, about politics and our current situation. And if you're interested in that, by putting it out on the uh, airways, I feel like that'll help me uh, actually get it done. So do look for that if you're interested. It's going to be, um, I mean, if you've listened to the show before at all, you're going to know it has a, going to have a strong progressive slant to it. And it's going to talk about uh, leftists and um, centrists and uh, it's going to be about everything from my feelings on my activism. So I don't want to exclude myself from the rant, but um, to a lot of other things about what's been happening lately. And so um, if you're interested in my ramblings about um, politics, other than the occasional asides here on the uh, actual show, I will try and get that up within the next week or so. Of course, I might have some more time on my hands (laughs) um, in the coming days and weeks. So um, unfortunately, I think that we do have to talk about COVID-19 today. Um, I apologize if you've just been listening to Democracy Now! um, because I am going to cover a lot of the same ground, Um, but... I hope that you uh, will still be interested in what I have to say about it, uh, even though I'm not an actual doctor, nor do I play one on TV. Okay, so the World Health Organization on Wednesday formally declared the outbreak as a global pandemic. Now, as of 1 p.m. on Friday today, 116 countries had reported 1,370. 1,445 cases of and 5,088 deaths from COVID-19. However, there have also been almost 70,000 recoveries from the illness as of this afternoon. And this is according to the Johns Hopkins Center for Systems Science and Engineering, which has been maintaining an ArcGIS map, which has basically been the go-to for many to track the virus's spread. Now, by the way, just a bit of terminology check. COVID-19 is the name of the illness, not uh, coronavirus not any of the other wonderful things that have been going around on Twitter today, um, but the actual um, medical term for it is COVID-19. And again, that's the name of the illness. The virus that causes COVID-19 is actually referred to as SARS-CoV-2 or Severe Acute Respiratory System, uh, sorry, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. 
and this is reflecting its close connection to the previous novel, Coronavirus, which caused SARS. And so uh, Director General Tedros of the World Health Organization noted that they had held off on declaring a pandemic because of fears that this might trigger countries to stop working as hard to contain the disease. He stressed that there is still a lot that countries can do to change the course of the disease. Describing the situation as a pandemic does not change whose assessment of the threat posed by this coronavirus, Tedros said at the WU's headquarters in Geneva uh, as he made this announcement. It doesn't change what who is doing and it doesn't change what country should do. Now, I had been trying really hard to express cautious optimism about our prospects of kind of coming out of this relatively unscathed. Um, It's only turned into extremely mild panic in recent days. Um, So for instance, I was talking to my nephew the other day, and I said to him, you know, I'm a person who's very, very worried about infectious diseases. I, um, you know, I watched Outbreak too too young. And um, it's just, I've never liked monkeys ever since then. Um, though some of them are very cute. Um, and I am not in panic mode. Um, I think that we definitely have to be precautionary. And I've been trying to be very careful about hand washing and things like that and minimizing my um, interactions with people who I don't know as being people who are also in the same interactive group as I am. Um, And so I just, I don't want people to panic um, in the sense of, in which the who was basically talking about the The idea is to keep people from panicking, which leads to inaction. You want to be mildly panicked so that you can do things. (laughs) And so I think there is a qualitative difference there between the kind of mild panic that uh, makes you want to do things and the overwhelming panic that makes you just sit down and feel like everything is just going to fall apart and there's nothing you can do about it. And so I think it's really important to to note that those are two very different things and we want to focus on the first one, the mild panic that helps us remember to do things. (laughs) And so one of the things that we're really trying to do as much as possible um, and with especially with individual level um, interventions is to help flatten the curve. And that's something I'll talk a bit more about in a minute. Um, but if we can do that, we might get through this only slightly scathed um, rather than ravaged. <laughs> now, some countries, including China, South Korea, and Hong Kong, have seen a rapid decrease in cases in recent days after aggressive pushes to end transmission through the recommended steps of containment and mitigation. Now, in the U.S., this will be an important test not only for our emergency preparedness, which is already looking a little bit bleak and had been before any of this even happened. People have been uh, people who study these sorts of things who are rarely listened to were telling people that we weren't prepared for something like this. But also, it is going to be an important test for our political and economic future. 
um, especially in this country. Now, I'm not particularly sheepish about sharing my views on these fronts. Um, I did just advertise a rant about it. (laughs) Um, And of course, I would never, ever wish a thing like this to happen to anyone anywhere. But I'm hoping to try and find some silver linings, including that one of the upshots might be revealing in really plain terms some of the cracks both in our current political system, but also in capitalism as practiced in the U.S. in particular. So for instance, the lack of universal health care, paid sick leave, and other forms of social safety net will prove quite challenging as we move forward, especially with things like um, the current administration saying that they're going to move ahead with cutting a million people off of food stamps, just as we are about to go into a really tense period where people are going to be uh, unable to work. Uh, whether they want to or not. So if your company says you can't come to work and they're also not going to pay you, there's not a lot you can do about that. Um, and so it's it's very frustrating. Uh, but I think we have to hold on to those recriminations for later. Uh, but, you know, we can talk about them for a moment. Uh, for instance, the bungled rollout of testing, the lack of a coherent response to the disease, Um putting someone in charge who, while, um, you know, people have said a lot of things about putting Mike Pence into ch- in charge of the, um, as the sort of czar, but um, I was reading an interesting article about the um, Ebola czar, and some of the people who worked with that person, whose name is escaping me at the moment, um, said that it was actually turned out to be really important to have someone who understood politics in that role. And so um, I don't really trust Mike Pence, but I do want to just point out there that, you know, having someone who is a politician in that role isn't just shameless pandering um, or just shameless ignoring of scientists. I think it's important to give credit where credit is due on that one. Um, But of course, there's also the irresponsibility of individuals and companies to not take warnings seriously enough, such as Biogen uh, here in the Boston area, who uh, through holding a conference at the end of last month, single-handedly doubled the number of confirmed cases in the Commonwealth and increased cases in many other places um, because, of course, the people who were there then went back to where they were from. Now, in their defense, even though I totally think they should have known better because they are literally in bioengineering, (sighs) Um, that was still at the point where people were basically just saying, you know, unless you had been in China, that it was fine. Um, And it turned out that they ended up having attendees from Italy. Um, They didn't have anyone from China. So, you know, they thought they were okay. But unfortunately, um, people didn't realize yet how much of a hotbed Italy was going to be. And part of the reason why Italy has been such so hard hit is that they have a very large elderly population. So um, some of the numbers there are a little bit more about demographics than they are about um, their ability to contain the virus and their actual like response to the virus. Some of that is just literally there are more old people in Italy than anywhere else in uh, Europe. And so that's part of why they have such high rates there. 
Let us move on and work on substituting fear with facts and talk about what is really going on, how to avoid becoming infected, how to how that can help keep the country at large, uh, healthy, and maybe we will squeeze in some palate cleansing stories. Um, we should be able to get in at least a story about some dinosaurs um, or some avian dinosaur, I should say, a really weird one. So hang on for that. It's coming. But let us first talk a, a little bit more about Wuhan. Be- I'm sorry. Um, I just... <laughs> about COVID-19. Um, I was, I saw something about Wuhan. I think it's really, really important not to um, connect those two things because this virus could have come from anywhere. Um, I think it's really, really important for us to remember not to try and connect uh, Wuhan to the virus in particular in some sort of way that implies that It's their fault um, because, again, it's a virus. It has nothing to do with the people who initially got the virus. Nature is really sneaky and it's really good at finding ways to uh, kill people and kill animals and kill plants. And, you know, um, (laughs) viruses and bacteria have been doing this for a very long time. I was just thinking about tuberculosis earlier for something else I'm doing. And I was thinking about how, um, you know, it's basically been around with humans for as long as humans have been around. Um, You can find mummies from ancient Egypt that have signs of tuberculosis. You can find much earlier um, signs of it in bones. And so, you know, it doesn't, even though currently... China tends to be the place where these novel things are emerging. It's not because of the people. It's not because they've, they're they doing something weird or different. It's just a confluence of um, just population demographics and um, some of the um, natural elements and the fact that basically Eurasia is a giant, huge place full of all sorts of things that can mix and match together. Um, And so just because it's coming from China doesn't mean that there's anything about it that is inherently uh, Chinese and that there's any reason to say uh, that, you know, it's their fault. And in fact, China did extraordinary things to contain it. And they actually were really, really able to keep it Um, you know, from completely decimating their population. I mean, they have, they have other really large population centers that have not had as much um, problem with the virus because they shut down travel so early, because they really saw that if they let people travel for Lunar New Year, that it would become much bigger. And so, um, you know, they really have done a good job, even though obviously, we can all, again, later on, get into recriminations about Chinese culture as far as the um, initial jailing of uh, doctors who were trying to raise alarms and things like that. But sort of once the spotlight got on them, they at least did do the right thing. And the people who suffered from it 
are not to blame. And I just, you know, it's been crazy, a lot of the xenophobia that's come through about this. And I think it's really important just to take a minute and talk about it because um, we really have to be careful not to try and connect these two things in a way that is lasting. Um, But anyways, again, let's get back and talk about facts and not fear. And so the disease still has a fairly low mortality rate for a novel virus. So when new viruses pop up, they actually usually have pretty high um, mortality rates because what happens is that over time, they become less virulent as they become more infectious because the point of a virus or a bacterial infection is for the virus or bacteria to continue to be able to um, live and reproduce and spread. And so if you kill the host very quickly, that can make it hard to spread. And so as they develop, they tend to get less virulent. But luckily, this one started out pretty um, low on the virulence scale, even though obviously it is not inconsequential. um, It is still low for novel um, viral infections or infections. And so around 80% are mild and people will just feel kind of crappy for a while and then they'll be okay. Um, 50% are severe and only around 5% end up needing critical care. Now, the number of percentage for fatalities is still up in the air, um, obviously because things are developing. And so this is just for people who were symptomatic um, because there turns out that there probably are people out there who are asymptomatic. And so that would actually change the rates, um, especially for mortality. But generally, they think it's around 1% um, or even lower. And so that's that's good uh, in relative terms, obviously. And so researchers are actually getting a better handle now on how the virus is able to spread so quickly. A new study from scientists in Berlin and Munich suggests that once a person has been infected, they begin rapidly shedding high volumes of virus, even in mild cases. However, it seems that in mild cases, even if a person still tests positive from a throat swab, they are likely no longer shedding the virus after around 10 days after the onset of symptoms. Now, of course, all of these stories or all of these research uh, papers are still kind of in preprint because nobody's had time to peer review them, but they've been looked at by uh, by colleagues. Um, And so the study definitely could inform public health responses as the outbreak continues. This is a very important contribution to understanding both the natural history of COVID-19 clinical disease, as well as the public health implications of viral shedding, said Michael Osterholm, director of the University of Minnesota's Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, who was not involved in the research. And so the researchers studied the viral shedding of nine people who had contracted the virus. They not only tested for fragments of the virus's DNA, they also tried to culture the virus from sputum, blood, urine, and stool samples taken from the subjects. Now, this is what's important. It allows researchers to better understand the vector of infection and how long that person can infect others. Based on the present findings, early discharge with ensuing home isolation could be chosen for patients who are beyond day 10 of symptoms with less than 100,000 viral RNA copies per milliliter of sputum, the authors said, suggesting that 
that point, there is little residual risk of infectivity based on cell culture. And so this is an important finding because the WHO has noted that some people who have fully recovered are still testing positive weeks later on throat swabs and sputum samples. And so it turns out that even though they're still doing that, it's pretty clear now that they're, that they're non-infective towards others. And so they found very high levels of virus emission from all patients from the throat at the earliest parts of their illness, when people generally haven't even realized they're infected. That's what makes this so uh, infectious in general. Now, viral shedding decreased by day five for all but two of the patients who had a more severe case of the illness. These two patients stopped shredding stopped shedding uh, between 10 and 11 days after the onset of symptoms. And so this shows that the new coronavirus outbreak is unlike that from SARS, which had peak shedding later once the virus had moved into the deep lungs, making isolation much easier. And in addition, scientists believe that patients are shedding a thousand times more virus at the peak than that at the peak times for SARS. And so this goes a long way to showing why COVID-19 has spread so much more rapidly and infected so many more people than SARS did. Now, they also looked at whether the virus was being spread in the patient's stool. Early reports from China and the WHO suggested that it might be possible. Now, the German team did not find any evidence of this in the current cohort, but noted that these were almost all patients with mild infections, so it couldn't be considered definitive one way or the other. They suggest, however, that given the mixed results, messaging should concentrate on ways to prevent respiratory tract transmission as a first line of defense. Now, the virus couldn't be grown from either urine or blood samples taken from the patients. Another finding was the rapid response of the immune system. Patients seem to develop antibodies very quickly from 6 to 12 days after infection, which again may go away a long way to explaining why around 80% of patients do not develop severe disease. Now, of course, the main factors for the disease are cough, shortness of breath, and fever. Now, fever is a big one. Um, Generally, if you have a cold, you could have a cough, you could be congested, but you don't have COVID-19, almost certainly. Um, But once you have a fever, that's when you really know. And even if you're concerned, especially if you've been in contact with someone who you think might have the disease, even if you just have a cough and shortness of breath, you should definitely contact someone um, in you should contact your doctor or a medical health professional. Um, Now, part of the problem is that this is, of course, the beginning of allergy season for many, and I have terrible allergies. Um, I, you can probably hear in my voice that I am congested and that's because of allergies. Um, and so it's going to be a struggle for some people to figure out, am I just having my normal allergies or am I actually sick? And so that's when fever again comes into play. Um, so the really defining thing for a lot of this is, do you have a fever? Um, and so of course, we can kind of glide over because I'm sure you've heard this a million times before, uh, but the best ways to prevent getting infected or infecting others, um, the big one is social distancing. 
um, which includes not inc- not attending large gatherings, um, not having people be, uh, you know, in very close quarters with one another if they don't have the exact same amount of exposure. So like, you know, um, the current guidelines are at least arm's length and preferably six feet between people. And so arm's length is basically the length that large droplets of sputum can sort of travel <laughs> to get to you. Um, and six feet is what it can, is sort of the range for if um, the virus is able to travel in an aerosol. And so err on the side of caution with six feet. Um, now, of course, use discretion. Uh, you know, you have to be able to do more close contact with people in your household. Um, and so that's okay. Like, you're still allowed to hug your kids. <laughs> um, but obviously, for people outside of your sort of sphere of influence, try and keep people at least at arm's length. Um And of course, there's all of the normal hygiene stuff. Wash your hands, wash them for at least 20 to 30 seconds, Uh, use alcohol-based hand sanitizer if you can't, make sure you're coughing and sneezing into a tissue or the crook of your elbow, try and avoid touching your face. That's pretty much the hardest one as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it should, and it is for most people. Most people touch their face a lot all day, so don't feel bad if you're not being able to not do that because it's a thing that humans do all the time. Um, And so obviously stay home if you're sick, stay away from people who are sick, make sure that you're cleaning down frequently touched surfaces with disinfectants. And finally, only wear a face mask if you are experiencing symptoms or caring for someone who is. Unnecessary use of face masks has two major impacts. First, it lowers the number of supplies needed for, needed or available for people who actually need them. And it also kind of unnecessarily worries those around you. So definitely try and skip that if you can. Um, of course, you know, uh, as you have probably noticed, panic has already set in somewhat. Uh, store shelves are were empty last night in the valley. Um, it was pretty surprising and shocking to me um, to find that there was no rice at uh, the store. Um, so remember, though, you don't need to stock up that much. Even if you need to be quarantined, it's generally only 14 days. There have been no reported reinfections, which suggests that your body develops an immunity to the virus as it runs its first course of infection. So after that, you'll be able to live normally again. There is no need to pack in supplies like it's Armageddon, and you're pretty sure you're not on the list to be raptured. (laughs) But again, if you do have a fever and think that you might have been exposed, um, there are several steps that you should take. The first one is to isolate as much as possible and contact your health provider or other or the local hospital if you don't have a primary care physician because I know not everybody does. <sighs> Unless you're in real distress, the best thing to do initially is to stay at home and call the doctor rather than going in to see them. For instance, I had was seeing my doctor for something else the other day and their office already had messaging that stated, if you think you have the virus, stay outside and call them so that they can come outside to you rather than you coming into the waiting room. Um, if you need to leave the house and you do actually think you've been infected, 
that's the time when you should wear a face mask if possible. Remember to do all the other things really, really important. You know, wash your hands a lot, make sure you're not touching other people, things like that. But most importantly, stay calm. Most people, again, 80% have mild infections, which resolve after a week or two. But if you are starting to feel like you're unable to breathe or particularly ill, don't hesitate to reach out to medical help, especially if you're in a high-risk group like those over 50, especially over 80, but over 50, and especially if you have an underlying condition like asthma or an immune deficiency. So yeah, okay, we should take a moment to breathe, listen to some show promos and uh, PSAs, and then we'll come back and talk more um, expansively about the idea of flattening the curve. Um, So do hang on for just a few minutes. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. Aquí habla Marta Martínez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. I Heart J Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J Rock, J Pop, J Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require speaking into a small machine, representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio, found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. For the best in electro, new wave, funk, and dance, tune into Subculture, Friday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. Listen from your computer, iPad, or phone by tuning into valleyfreeradio.org. Subculture, Friday nights, here on WXOJ. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. From the one-ups to the hit points, Kadesh Flow to Mega Ran, Press Start to Continue gives you two full hours of the best in video game remixes and nerdcore hip-hop. Join Morlock every Monday night at 9 on Valley Free Radio 103.3 FM and check out the show archives at starttocontinue.com. Press start to continue, bringing nerd music to the masses.
Reggae Down is on Mondays from 6 to 8 p.m. Turn on your radio for great sounds from international reggae artists, roots, dancehall, DJ mixes, and rhythms. Get down with Reggae Down every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. This is Ruthie from Petal People here at this recycling bin to remind you that cups are not recyclable. I know you want to. Don't do it because it just means that your local trash hauler has to pick them out or the worker on the line at the Murph in Springfield has to pick them out or potentially it could contaminate the entire load of recycling, meaning the entire load is now trash. So no cups in the recycling and ideally no plastic cups anywhere. Thank you. Okay, we are back. And uh, again, if you're tuning in just now, uh, you're living, listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and I just have allergies, I promise. <laughs> okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about the idea of flattening the curve. So you'll probably have heard some of this, and... Um, so if you don't know what it is, I did want to talk about it a little bit because it's a really important epidemiological idea. And so it's a term used to describe the arc in the number of cases along a timeline of infection. So if you um, graph number of cases versus time, um, you want that curve to be gentle and long rather than just being a giant uh, really steep hill and then coming right back down. And so that's what a lot of epidemics end up being. And anything you can do to mitigate that is really important um, because there is a dotted line somewhere along that graph, um, which is the number of cases of all things uh, having to do with health that the healthcare system can handle. And generally, when you have a sharp curve, that is going to be way above the number of um, the numbers that the healthcare system is really uh, actually capable of helping. And so that's when things become chaotic. And so one of the big problems there is that this actually leads not only to more deaths from the outbreak itself, but also more deaths due to resources being diverted to combating the outbreak rather than for normal healthcare activities. So people who are already in the hospital with other things, their doctors are going to have to end up being diverted and a lot of times to dealing with triaging people who are dying, uh, potentially. And so the way to flatten a curve, uh, again, is to spread them out over a longer timeline, which much with much less peaked groupings. 
And so, of course, the way to do this is to, again, practice those protective measures like social distancing, proper hygiene adherence, and other measures that slow the progression of the disease as it moves through a population. And so that's why everybody's been canceling everything. I know it seems really premature in some respects, um, but it it's really important for helping flatten the curve. If you look at the curves of outbreaks, they go big peaks and then come down. What we need to do is flatten that down, Anthony Fossey, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, told reporters Tuesday. That would have less people infected. That would ultimately have less deaths. You do that by trying to interfere with the natural flow of the outbreak. And now we've, of course, already learned some things from China. Previous to the extraordinary measures taken in the country, many thought that shutting down whole cities actually wouldn't even aid in slowing down the transmission. Uh, It wouldn't have any sort of impact and that it actually might even be counterproductive. However, we've seen that the spread of the virus has slowed down to minor rates at this point. Now, of course, this isn't to say that I support the mass detention of people in, the, in their homes in the United States. For one thing, we don't even have the culture for that sort of thing. The Chinese have a much different culture that's much more based on community. So it's an easier sell to say, stay home because you don't want to infect other, others in the community. Um, we... You just have to be honest about this. We tend to be much more um, of that rugged individualist that says, you know, I'm only going to pay attention about what's important for me and my my family rather than the culture as a whole. It's just a way that a lot of Americans are and you can't get around to that. But the other big one is that we don't know who out there is infected and where the true hotspots will be in the coming days. So sure, we know that there are lots of people in, say, Washington, and there's frankly a lot of people in Boston at this point, but there could be other places that we don't even know about yet because of the uh, very poor rollout of monitoring and, of course, testing. But again, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try everything to do to contain and mitigate the spread of COVID-19. Even if we are not headed to zero transmission, any cases that we can prevent and any transmissions that we can avoid are going to have enormous impact, not only on the individuals who end up not getting sick, but all of the people that they would have ended up infecting, and so much more that we can minimize it, the better. And so that's from Caitlin Rivers at Johns Hopkins. Now, most of the U.S. runs at close to capacity for healthcare in normal everyday practice. So huge influxes of sick people would have a devastating effect on the system. I think the whole notion of flattening the curve is to, is to slow things down so that this doesn't hit us like a brick wall, said Michael Mina, Associate Medical Director of Clinical Microbiology at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital. It's really all born out of the risk of our healthcare infrastructure pulling apart at the seams if the virus spreads too quickly and too many people start showing up at the emergency room at any given time. And so this is just a really hard thing to deal with because it feels 
really dumb um, to have to close all of these things. And, you know, people feel very weird about it. You know, school shutting down. Uh, there's no real big toll yet. But the point is to death toll, I should say. But the point is to get out ahead of it. I would love nothing better than to hear people who don't understand epidemiology crow about how nothing actually happened and we survived unscathed. I'd love for that to happen. But the only way for that to happen is if we pay attention now and do what needs to be done. I'd rather a hundred smug I told you so's to one death. Mina sums up the current situation thusly. We are all wondering if our actions are melodramatic and we're feeling silly, he said, noting that people still feel conscious, for instance, bumping elbows instead of shaking hands. But this is the problem, that people aren't recognizing that we are at this moment and we can make decisions right now to flatten this curve by being okay with wondering if we're being melodramatic. Should we, cance should we be canceling classes? Should we be canceling our flights? Should we not be shaking hands? All of these are things that I want the public to keep wondering if we should be doing this. Because the moment we're no longer wondering whether we should do it, it's too late. That means that we know we should be doing it. And that's a bad place to be. Okay, that is enough for tonight. Um... We are going to move on because I definitely do want to get in at least one or maybe two if we can really get going uh, stories that are not about this. So first off, let's talk about a tiny fossil found in amber that is a new entry into our understanding of the evolution of birds and the trend toward actually miniaturization. So this piece of amber is from the Cretaceous period around 99 million years ago and comes from a very productive amber mine in Myanmar. During the Mesozoic era, which includes the Cretaceous, Jurassic, and Triassic periods, the age of dinosaurs, uh, who rose up and evolved into many lineages of both herbivores and carnivores, and some of them became really big. In fact, the largest land animals ever to walk across the earth. However, it seems like that by the Cretaceous, at least, miniaturization was also uh, developing. And so the just over half an inch long skull of a bird-like dinosaur, the discoverers have named Oculodentavis congraiae, represents the smallest dinosaur yet found in the fossil record. It's the weirdest fossil I've ever been lucky to study, said GMI O'Connor, the lead author of the study and a paleontologist from the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology in Beijing, China. I just love how natural selection ends up producing such bizarre forms. Now, amber is an exceptional medium for preservation because it allows features that would otherwise have been lost to be studied in detail, such as bits of feather and the remains of plants and small insects, as well as soft-tissued animals like frogs and mollusks. It is very valuable for researchers giving them unprecedented look at small creatures, including those early birds, and of course it is particularly the case for tiny animals that lived in trees, said Luis Chiape, a co-author of the study and a researcher at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. And so the researchers used high-resolution synchroton CT scanning to be able to image the skull without physically damaging it. 
The skull compares to that of the modern bee hummingbird, the smallest modern bird currently on Earth. Estimates are that the bird would have weighed around 2 grams, or just 0.07 ounces, and would have been around one-sixth the size of the earliest bird known of the earliest known bird fossils. It suggests that miniature body size evolved earlier than previously thought and might in future give researchers more information about the mechanism by which such shrinkage occurs. Now, while comparable in some ways to hummingbirds, instead of drinking nectar, Ovuladentavis had a beak full of tiny sharp teeth between 29 and 30, by estimation, and this is actually more teeth than any other bird found in the fossil record thus far. Its tooth row accommodated all of these teeth by extending all the way back to just under the large eye, which gave it its name. It actually means eye tooth. Now, they assume the diet would have been small insects given all of the teeth. (laughs) This diet differs considerably from the nectar-based diet of the smallest living birds and suggests that extinct and living birds took different paths to miniaturization, wrote Roger Benson, a paleobiologist from the University of Oxford, who was not involved in the study with the research, but wrote a commentary on the paper, adding that it's not clear how the diet, animal's diet might be involved in this evolutionary process. Now, the bird not only had a ton of teeth, but very large eyes, comparable to lizards, which would have bulged out sideways in search of food and predators. And the bone structure suggests that it would have been a daylight hunter. But it turns out that the eyes are even more weird, They have eyebrows like owls, even though owls' eyes face forward rather than to the side. So they're not really sure what is actually going on with that. (laughs) Animals that become very small have to deal with specific problems, like how to fit all sensory organs into a very small head, or how to maintain body heat, explains O'Connor. This process, called miniaturization, commonly occurs in isolated environments, most famously islands. It is no wonder that the 99-million-year-old Burmese amber is thought to have come from an ancient island arc in northern Myanmar. Now, usually, miniaturization involves the loss of teeth and unusually large eyes, but with a beak full of teeth, Avulidentavis shows that the rules are obviously made to be broken. Um because we've talked about that a lot, especially when it comes to things like, again, taxonomy. (laughs) You think that things will fit into neat little boxes, but it is not how nature works. Nature likes to break all of your rules and likes to sit astride all of your boxes. Um, It's very frustrating. (laughs) Now, of course, there is a small chance that the fossil actually wasn't a bird, but all signs point to it being an avian dinosaur. Now, controversially, the authors suggest that this bird would fit in as the third oldest bird yet, bumping Chehalornis up a branch from Archaeopteryx and Fuchipecteryx prima. Now, more fossils will definitely need to be found in order to see if this placement holds out, um, especially since it's such a departure from the other uh, fossils to have this tiny little bird um, that is just completely different in the sense of 
its uh, tininess, of its structure. Um, again, it has the most teeth of any bird that has been that's been found. So all of these early birds would have actually had teeth. Um, and in fact, you know, there's the there's the um, there are scientists who have done experiments where they've kind of bred chickens, um, and sometimes it happens just naturally. But you can actually breed chickens to uh, have teeth. <laughs> if you do it right, you can actually get chickens that have reverted to having teeth. Um, and so, uh, because of course, again, they started out as dinosaurs and as dinosaurs, they would most certainly have teeth. Um, and of course they came from a lineage of carnivorous dinosaurs. So definitely teeth. <laughs> and it's only later that the sort of beak became more specialized and became more the, um, rule rather than the exception. Okay. So let us move on now and talk about the moon. I wanted to get in a couple of just regular old stories tonight. <laughs> and so um, for a long time, there's been kind of a problem with the moon. I mean, the moon's great, but uh, we've really struggled to explain why our idea of how the moon was formed didn't really jazz with the uh, evidence of moon rocks and earth rocks. Uh, they were too similar, and we couldn't figure out what was going on. But it looks like there might be a breakthrough on that front. And so uh, geochemical analysis from Apollo lunar samples suggests that it formed around 4.5 billion years ago when a theoretical Mars-sized object named Thea hit the Earth, which was just about finished forming. Computer models suggest that in this impact, the debris that created the moon should be 70 to 80% made from the material of Thea rather than Earth. But for years, researchers have struggled to find the signature of that material in samples from the moon, which have consistently mirrored that of the Earth. But a new look has detected oxygen isotope differences between the moon and earth rocks. Eric Cano, a graduate student at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, and his colleagues conducted new high-precision measurements on the oxygen isotope compositions of a variety of lunar samples from the Apollo missions. It turns out samples from the surface of the moon are virtually indistinguishable from those on Earth. However, if you look at volcanic glass and basalts formed deeper within the moon, you find distinct isotope composition. Now, he's not sure why this hasn't been noted before. It could be just the selection of samples that we got from NASA that covered a wide variety of the different rock types. They suggest that the moon's core is composed mostly of remains of Thea, but that the material scraped from the Earth might have formed an early atmosphere, which eventually mingled with the still molten upper layers of the moon's mantle and caused it to more closely resemble that of the Earth. It's not that Thea is being preserved in the core necessarily, but we believe that the lunar interior is preserving this kind of original composition of the moon post-impact, Cano said. Now, of course, the difference isn't all that large. It's much smaller than the difference between Mars and Earth, and extremely smaller than the difference from Earth and most meteorites. 
However, it's enough to allow researchers to tweak their models of how the moon formed to give them better answers than previously available. Models will always have to include some degree of mixing between the proto-Earth and Thea, because that's kind of inevitable in a collision that is as violent as the giant impact hypothesis predicts, Kano said. This does eliminate the necessity for these models to include a mechanism that will completely homogenize the oxygen isotopes between Earth and the moon. So it essentially kind of opens the door for new parameters that can be used for an entirely new range of impact scenarios. Now, Kano hopes that with this discovery, other differentials in isotopic concentrations may yet be found. So that is very exciting. And so... Hopefully, they will find more of those, and then there'll be all sorts of cool things to find out about the interior of the moon. And just to finish up tonight, I want to reiterate again, um, just because it sadly does need repeating, that we absolutely have gone to the moon, uh, that these actually are uh, samples from the lunar surface, even though a lot of them are indistinguishable from um, Earth rocks, they actually did honestly come from the moon. And please stop saying that they didn't. Uh, crazy conspiracy people. Um, or I should say, oddball conspiracy theory people. Um, I'm sorry for saying crazy. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely... <laughs> it's. I was having a conversation with someone at work today about, um, you know, conspiracy theories and things like that. And she was saying like, oh, you know, do we really have that many people who believe weird things? And I was like, oh, yes. Oh, yes, we do. Um, and she was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about some of those things. And we were talking about, for instance, people who honestly believe the earth is flat. Um, again, there just seems to be this real idea that NASA is this like crazy secret organization that's just constantly trying to, for some reason that nobody can really articulate, lie to you consistently and all the time. Um, and I just don't understand. No one's ever given me a good explanation for why they do it. Um, maybe if they had a good explanation for why NASA would bother doing this, I might be more amenable to taking them even a slightly bit serious. Um, but since they never do seem to have a good reason, I'm just going to keep going in my uh, idea that this is a reality-based thing and that the moon is round, it is circling the earth, which is also round, or and both are oblate spheroids, um, <laughs> if we want to be dorky, but yes. All right. That is it for this week. I hope I will be back next week. <sighs> Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy. <laughs>